0: Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping, and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and today I am continuing my book review of Honeybee Democracy by Thomas Seeley. This episode will cover chapter nine, and this chapter is really looking at the similarities between the mechanisms used in a honeybee swarm making a decision. And those in primate brains, specifically how neurons function in a way that is comparable to what we're seeing on a honeybee swarm. Now, before I get into the nitty gritty of the episode, I just want to do a quick disclaimer to say that I'm recording this very early in the morning. I don't usually record in the mornings because I'm not a morning person I'm not very awake but this was the best time that I had to get this done so I apologize if I seem sleepy or if I trip over my words more than usual it's going to be that kind of a day I think also there might be some more background noise than I usually like to have in the episodes uh, I'm actually pet sitting for a friend's greyhound who we lovingly call whiny Winnie, because she expresses all of her emotions through whining and as much as I try and edit these things out when the dogs are running around or whining or making noise I can't always get all of it and still keep the integrity of the episode so I'm just going to apologise up front that you might hear a little bit of whiny Winnie in the background. So first things first, homestead updates. If you follow me on Instagram you would have seen that actually the day after my last episode went live I sadly had to euthanize my red hen Agnes. Now Agnes is not to be confused with Agatha. Agatha is my super ancient old lady hen who lives in the special needs coop with Squeak who's my beakless rescue hen. Agnes is the hen who I've spoken about recently because she had been to the vet for a swollen abdomen that turned out to be fluid buildup. I had been concerned that she was an internal egg layer and that she'd have to be euthanized, but it turned out this fluid was mostly clear. There was no sign of her laying into her abdominal cavity So in response we did a course of strong antibiotics, we did a course of anti-inflammatories and at the end of those she went back out to her flock who she had missed very much. In the last episode I spoke about how I was coming to terms with the fact that she wasn't 100% still but she just seemed so happy to be with her flock, to be with her rooster that I was going to just let nature take its course. It occurred to me that she is possibly a very old chicken I don't know the age of a lot of my girls because of how I came to get them so I decided that you know she's old she's going to take things at her own pace and I would just let things go on as normal and I did just that and she was doing well until the Friday after my last episode I found her in the coop lying on her side very very weak clearly dying and she was in such a bad way that we decided the kindest thing to do would be to euthanize her at home instead of dragging her out to the vet. So if you have ever had to look up methods of euthanasia for chickens, you will find that the most recommended method is called cervical dislocation. This is a humane method of euthanasia and it involves basically disconnecting the skull from the spinal cord and in doing so very quickly ending the animal's life. Now when I was reading about spinal dislocation I knew I couldn't do it. I have a very strong reaction to certain sounds and I knew this would be one that would make me basically throw up. And so I spoke to my husband and he said that he would be willing to do it. So he did and it was interesting because I have spoken to him before about euthanizing the chickens at home and I had got the impression that he was too emotionally connected to them to do it but after this happened with Agnes and he was totally fine I asked him about it and he basically said that previously he wouldn't have felt comfortable doing it because the chickens had all been a lot more with it and it was more about letting them go when they're still moderately okay and not in huge amounts of pain or right on death's door whereas with Agnes it was so clear that she would have died if Within a few hours, if we hadn't done anything, that it really wasn't an issue for him, which I very much appreciate. I think being a biologist and having worked with animals and having to euthanize animals previously definitely helped him do this from a clinical standpoint. Now, once Agnes had passed, I did perform a necropsy and basically it was heart failure So what was interesting is I went into her abdominal cavity and I'll be honest this wasn't my finest necropsy. I somehow didn't parcel out her reproductive system or her lungs but basically what happened was that I pulled out her digestive system first and the first thing I noticed was that her crop was huge like quite distended and filled with food But there was no sign of a blockage, there was no sign of infection or a constriction of the um, sphincter that leads into the rest of her digestive system. And looking at her digestive system, it was processing food, and she had been pooping. Um, So I think what I basically came to realize was that her digestive system was very very slowly processing food and in response she was consuming more and more because she was still hungry and it was just building up in her crop and it just wasn't moving through fast enough and in response her crop became quite large and distended. That wasn't the cause of death. The cause of death was when I finally found her heart. And I will be honest, it took me a little while. And part of the reason why is because it was so small, um, much smaller than I've seen in other chickens. It was very pale and it was very soft. Now, if any of you have ever had the experience of handling a chicken heart, you'll know that it is firm. Um, It's not hard, but it's firm because it's muscular, right? Well hers wasn't at all it was very very soft almost floppy and so I think what's been happening here is a slow case of her heart coming to fail and in response due to lack of you know good blood supply moving through the rest of her body her digestive system had slowed down and really what finished her off was just the fact that her heart just couldn't go on anymore. Oh her I just thought of that song, My Heart Goes On, and I was like, this is so inappropriate. Anyway, um, yeah, so heart failure. Now, what's interesting about this is that usually in chickens, and you might remember that I talked about a CT's water belly, which is also caused by heart failure. Usually what you see is an enlarged heart, because as the heart is struggling to pump more blood around the body it is working harder and in response the muscle starts to build up and eventually you have this very large muscular heart that still isn't correcting the problem and eventually the heart just fails and that's what kills the chicken this is most commonly seen in meat birds Now when I took her to the vet we did an x-ray specifically looking at things like the size of her heart and her kidneys and her liver and everything seemed normal or within normal range and that's probably why we missed it because you know the vet and I were looking for an enlarged heart and instead we see sort of a heart on the smaller side but no real signs that it was struggling at that time. So that's Agnes she did pass away We now know what the cause was and I'll be honest that as much as I was sad to let her go, this was not a very emotionally draining passing for me because I had seen it coming for a while. And I had made the decision to let nature run its course with her so that she could be with her flock as long as she wasn't in pain and there was no sign that she was. And I really just feel that, you know, she lived her best little chicken life here. She had the adventure to my neighbor's yard, which I talked about in my last episode. And I really like to think that she did that because she knew it was her last chance to go out and meet those chickens and she was going to do it. And having done that, She was ready and she passed away. So RIP Agnes, you were a good little hen and you'll be missed. Speaking of my hens, one of my ginger hens not long after we lost Agnes was looking really unhappy, sort of just sitting away from the rest of the flock, looking kind of grumpy and tired. And so I scooped her up to check on her and I basically found what looked at first like adult pasty butt. Now pasty butt for anyone not familiar is a condition you see with chicks. Um, usually what happens is that the little chick has uh, soft feces and they get stuck in the fluffy feathers around their vent and as as a result of them getting stuck uh, it can actually seal the vent and then they're unable to pass further feces and it builds up inside them and it can kill them and it can kill them quite quickly. So when you have a chick or chicks you always need to check their little tushies. So I'm looking at this hen and I'm like well there's no way an adult hen has pasty burr and so a closer inspection showed that she had lice, Ugh, I just can't seem to get rid of these darn lice, and the eggs had built up around the feathers in her vent and in around her vent and in response, the feces had got stuck on this egg and everything had built up and it was basically pulling on the skin there and there were signs of inflammation. So I washed everything away, I removed the eggs, I um, gently kind of cleansed her vent area, Adjusted her with diatomaceous earth to try and address the rest of the lice issue and then used sort of a simple salve on the the sort of sore skin around her vent. Almost immediately she seemed to feel so much better. She started eating, um, she was running around grabbing snacks that I brought out and since then she's been a normal happy active chicken. And I'm very frustrated because I just feel like no matter what I do, I can't seem to stop these lice from being such an issue. I can't use Frontline on my main flock because then I won't be able to eat the eggs and that's why I have them. So I've decided to try something that I've seen advertised by other homesteaders called First Saturday Lime. It's supposed to be a safe form of treatment to deal with things like lice. So once I have that, I will kind of give you an update about how things go. I also was able to see a showdown between my flock and a neighbourhood cat, Uh, No one was harmed. There was no signs of aggression. It was actually very interesting. I sort of stumbled upon the encounter and the cat and the chickens were just sort of staring at each other looking completely bemused. I don't think anyone knew what to do. The rooster was there, he was alert but he wasn't attacking and the cat wasn't either. In fact she seemed as if she had no idea how she got there, she didn't know what to think about these birds that were as big as she was and when she saw me she ended up running away so it was a non-issue but uh, yeah she was a beautiful cat, clearly someone's very loved pet and had no frame of reference for what she had seemed to stumble upon. So that makes me feel a little better about the cats that I've seen roaming around here. Hopefully they'll all be equally bemused. And honestly, if they come upon the flock when my rooster is there, I know that he'll take care of them. So over the past two weeks, uh, spring has definitely arrived here in northeast Ohio. We have had some absolutely glorious weather, even going into the 80s, which is very uncommon for this time of year. And I've been making the most of it. I've been outside whenever possible, clearing up the garden beds. i repaired the side path and the backyard path from when I had to dig up some plumbing pipes. I've started attacking the weeds on that one bed that I just ignored for over a year so it's been completely overrun by like creeping ivy all kinds of terrible weeds I've started clearing it it's a lot of work I do it all by hand but slowly but surely I'm I'm making some ground there and um, generally I've just been sort of enjoying you know being outside wandering the property seeing what's slowly coming into uh, to bloom what's peeping peeking up through the soil um just kind of enjoying just this beautiful weather that we've had um during one of my little wanders and sort of gazing at everything I saw a groundhog at the very back of the property and this was exciting for me because we have a lot of groundhogs in the area but they never come on our property the one time they did the dogs chased it away and I think the message got out and so we just don't see them well this guy is on the very back of my property technically on my neighbor's land and there's a big pile of old it looks like slabs of cement that had been broken and just piled up and it's become all overgrown over time and it's right up next to our vernal pool or what I call the swamp and in that pile of miscellaneous debris and concrete the woodchuck has made a burrow so i'm really excited i hope that the woodchuck stays there um woodchuck groundhog these are the same things but anyway i love them i hope they stay i hope that they raise a little family back there and i get to see the babies i think it's a good spot it's away from any of the neighborhood dogs it's far away from my fence line so my dogs can't bark at them and uh, my neighbor doesn't use that part of his property except to dump you know branches and stuff so I think it's a pretty safe place for this little woodchuck to be and I hope it sticks around to make spring truly official for me and my husband it is the return of an osprey pair So we live near a sort of major road and on this road up where the grocery stores and a lot of the other sort of um, fast food places and things are, there are a number of billboards and one billboard in particular from the time since we moved here and apparently long before then, there is one pair, a mated pair of osprey that always nest on this billboard and raise their young. So every year we wait for them to return in the spring and then we watch them carefully and we try and figure out when they have eggs and then we try and figure out when the eggs have hatched and eventually we start to see the fledglings and then finally the whole family leaves the nest and moves on and it's one of the highlights of our year honestly my husband and I really keep an eye out for these birds we absolutely love them. And so we were crushed recently to discover that the company that owns the billboard had ripped down the nest and then put up metal spikes to try and prevent further nesting. Now I wasn't the only one upset, my local birding community was furious, Um, in fact so many people have come to love that osprey pair that this sort of whole area, tons of people complained, tons of people were furious to the point where it actually made the local news, it was played on a number of news stations, and it was in almost all of the local papers. Now, apparently, it is legal to remove the nest when the birds aren't using it. And since the osprey will migrate to warmer areas over winter, the people who own the billboard decided that this was their best opportunity, and people did witness them going up there, ripping the nest down and putting up the spikes. Well, bad news for the advertising company because not only did they get a lot of bad press about their behaviour, but the osprey simply used the metal spikes to help them rebuild a new nest. And so right now I am pleased to say that our beloved osprey pair are building a great big ginormous nest up there and it looks like they will be raising their young there once again. So... I hope this is a lesson to the advertising company who has refused to comment on this issue in uh, no matter who contacts them. But um, I just really want to sort of say, na 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 (laughs) na, the Osprey win and you guys lose. And I think everyone here in my area is delighted to get to watch our Osprey raise their babies once more. Okay, so Hive updates. Uh, I don't have a huge amount to report. I did an inspection on Tuesday, April 6th. The weather was lovely and warm. It was over 65 degrees Fahrenheit. It was sunny. There was a very light breeze. It was basically perfect weather to go and have a little look around. So my one surviving colony is my Saskatraz-Ohio hybrid. So it's the daughter of a Saskatraz queen bee who open-mated here in Ohio. This colony is bursting with brood. It is so lovely to see their build-up. A new generation has already emerged based on the empty cells that I found and the nurse bees that I could see. And there are lots more eggs and a lot more capped um, cells. Now, I looked specifically for drone brood, uh, as that is a good early warning system for swarming. When there's a lot of drone brood, that can be a sign. Well, I only had literally five to six individual capped cells of drone brood at the time that I inspected. So I don't think this hive is even thinking about swarming just yet. I will obviously keep a close eye on them. Uh, I need to keep an eye on how much space they have. I don't want them to feel cramped because I want to avoid swarming. However, if they continue this kind of build up, I can start thinking ahead to making nucleus colonies or just splitting doing a split and um, then letting them raise their own queen. Now, previously, I had gone out and given them a deep box filled with honey frames that had come from my deceased colonies that had been frozen and then thawed. And I gave them such a huge amount of honey because I wanted to make sure that they had enough food to get them through the cooler nights that we've had and any potential cold snaps. Because, as I said, this really warm weather is not common for this time of year and I am surprised to say that they haven't really used much of the honey. They apparently had enough left over from their winter that they've been consuming that first. So I might have to take some of those frames away and replace them with um empty frames for more brood rearing. I guess watch this space. I'm going to be keeping a close eye on it. I did end up removing the hive wrap and the moisture box, but I have left the feeder on for the time being. Um, I'll likely remove it at the next inspection, which if the weather is good will be tomorrow, but otherwise later in the week. I do want them to eat the honey, really, but the feeder also has some additional pollen. And I just want to make sure at this time of year where they're working so hard to raise up their brood that they have enough. My next inspection, well probably within a couple of weeks, um, I plan on doing a mite check as well. I want to just make sure that the oxalic acid treatment that I have done previously um, did the trick. One last sort of bit of hive news, I suppose, is that um, I was contacted by a high school student who was doing a project on pollinators And had been given my name as someone to talk to and maybe who would let them film my colony. And I was delighted to help. So that happened over the weekend. Um, The high school student is a a lovely girl. She'll be um, going to Ohio State to do her degree in entomology which is very exciting um she brought her dad who also is a scientist he um, works with uh i'm trying to remember i think amphibians sort of in the wild but anyway so nice Um, it went really well I loved getting to um, show her like the inner workings of the hive we found the queen we saw lots of brood lots of pollen I think overall it was a really good experience and um, I was just happy to help so that was a nice little positive thing to do over the weekend. All right so now here we are we're at chapter nine of Honeybee Democracy and this chapter is Entitled Swarm as Cognitive Entity. It opens with a quote I'm a systems neurobiologist who studies how the three pounds of goo we call a human brain makes decisions. And that is by William Newson in 2008. Now, before I get into this chapter, I want to just give a quick disclaimer. So I did struggle a little bit with chapter nine. Um, I think it's clear that I will never be a neurobiologist because all of the information on neurons was honestly a little boring for me, um, which I'm not too proud to admit. I also found this chapter to have especially dry language, so I sometimes struggle to condense things down into what I consider to be an accessible format. So all this is just to say that any errors in this chapter are entirely my own, Um, And there might be a few things that are lost in translation a little bit. So I do highly recommend that you read this chapter yourself to fully grasp the material covered. Uh, I would like to think that I've done a pretty decent job of explaining things, but obviously it's always best to return to the actual source material. With that said, let's crack on. So far in this book we've looked at how honeybee swarms decide where to set up their new home. Each mechanism of this house hunting process has been identified and discussed in the previous chapters and now Seely invites us to step back from the detailed analysis and instead consider what's been learned about the general features of a swarm as a decision-making system. In doing this we can see comparisons of the mechanisms used by swarms to those of primate brains. Both seemingly disparate systems have been shaped by natural selection to efficiently collect information and act on it in a manner that benefits the whole. Just as individual bees within a swarm have limited information so do the neurons within primate brains. In other words to quote Seeley The decision-making process is broadly diffused among an ensemble of relatively simple information processing units. This next section is called conceptual framework for decision-making. Neuroscientists study monkeys, using them as a kind of human surrogate to dig deeper into the mystery of the human brain. The example of note for this chapter involves investigating a monkey brain while the monkey receives visual stimuli and then needs to make a decision. A monkey is placed before a screen with dots moving around on it. Some of the dots move right and some are moving to the left. The monkey has been trained to focus his eyes in the direction that has the most dots moving toward it. While the monkey is gazing at this screen, its eye movements are being tracked, while the scientists also record the neural activity. This has allowed neuroscientists to identify the neural processes involved in this particular decision-making task, whether the monkey looks left or right. When a decision is to be made, the starting point within the monkey's brain is the middle temporal or MT area of the brain, which processes sensory information about the motions witnessed. Each of these MT neurons have a receptive field that corresponds to a specific portion of the monkey's visual field. And each is sensitive to a particular direction of movement. So an MT neuron fires when it detects movement in one direction. But it would remain passive, it would not fire, if motion occurred in the opposite direction. Working together, MT neurons provide information on the strength of rightward and leftward motion throughout the full visual field. Next in the process, the lateral intraparietal or LIP area of the brain comes into play. These neurons receive input from the MT neurons and are organised into direction-specific integrators. What this means is that if a monkey is shown a display with rightward moving dots, the LIP neurons that act as rightward motion integrators will fire and their firing rate will increase in relation to the stimulus strength. So more rightward moving dots will cause more rightward LIP neurons to fire. Crucially, the various integrators corresponding to different motion directions are mutually inhibitory. This means that stimulus strength is the key. Even if the firing rates of LIP neurons associated with rightward and leftward motion increase at the same rate, only those with the strongest stimulus will continue to increase their firing rate, while the weaker will start to decrease. This assists in the monkey discriminating between simultaneous right and left movement of visual objects. The activity of these integrators eventually reaches a threshold and that results in a decision being made. So a monkey exposed to a mix of dots moving in multiple directions can choose the direction in which most of the dots move and then choose to focus its eyes in that direction. You might already be seeing the similarities in this process and that of the decision making of a swarm, but let's look at that a little more closely. This next section is called the sensory transformation in a swarm. We know that scout bees fly for several kilometres in all directions to look for prospective nest sites and that should a desirable nest cavity be found, she will return to the swarm cluster and report her finding through her waggle dance. The strength or number of dance circuits of her dance indicates the quality of the found site with high dance circuits indicating high quality. We know that each scout acts as a site-specific sensory unit, reporting on just one nest site at a time, much like the MT neurons that report on just a section of the visual field. The display of bee dances can be thought of as the swarm's sensory representation of the landscape of potential nest sites, just as the MT neuron firings form a sensory representation of visual stimuli in the monkey's brain. Celia identifies several ways in which scout bees build their swarm sensory information. Number one, several hundred scout bees make up the sensory apparatus of a swarm within a few hours. These intrepid explorers can gather a wealth of information on potential nest sites. Scouts can discover, inspect and report on almost a dozen sites in just one afternoon. Number two, Scouts collect information over several hours and even several days. A long period of discovery and information acquisition means that a swarm collects a larger and therefore more reliable amount of information. Number three, each scout makes an independent evaluation of a site. We know that the majority of scouts that report on a site were actually recruited to it. A recruited scout will first inspect the site and she will then decide how strongly she will dance for it depending on how high quality she found it to be. This individual inspection means that a reporting error can be corrected. A scout who dances strongly for a poor site will be quickly overruled by recruited scouts who find her location poor and then choose not to dance for it. Number four, scout reporting leads to recruitment of additional scouts. A strong reporting of a site leads to recruitment of more scouts who in turn recruit others and so on. This is called a positive feedback loop and results in the better site monopolizing the dances, which leads to the swarm's attention or sensory input focusing on the higher quality locations. Number five, scouts reduce their dance response over time. Although a good nest site does not decline in quality, scout bees report on it less as time passes. This means that inferior sites will be forgotten over time as the older scouts lose their drive to dance and no recruits return from the weaker sites to report on it. Instead, the strong dancers continue and gain support. This decay in dance response contributes to the swarm focusing on the higher quality sites. Number six, scouts may choose between exploring and exploiting. So it's not known at this time for sure, but it's entirely possible that scouts choose between exploring unknown sites versus exploiting known sites, and they could do so by sensing the abundance of dancers on the swarm. This would function as a kind of regulation of sensory input, increasing exploration when the swarm has little information or few dancers and then decreasing when abundance of information has been gleaned when there are many dancers dancing for many sites. These six features foster successful swarm decision making but there are two features that actually hamper successful decision making. First scouts make reports individually at varied times. For instance, depending on the time of discovery, most dances at the swarm could be for a poor site because a better location has yet to be found and recruited for. In this instance, just because many scouts are dancing does not mean the site found is of high quality. Secondly, individual scouts produce a wide variation in the number of dance circuits per dance. Thankfully, to offset this noisy reporting, a swarm integrates its sensory information over many hours and across hundreds of bees. The next section is called the decision transformation in a swarm. After the first stage of decision making through sensory input, the monkey brain and the honeybee swarm moves on to stage two, decision transformation, The primary function of this stage is to integrate all of the noisy information, allowing the brain or swarm to know how much evidence overall has been collected for each potential outcome. This allows a decision to be made. We learned previously how, in a monkey brain, the LIP neurons integrate information received by the MT neurons. In response, the LIP neurons compile the level of input, or stimulation, and adjust its output, firing rate, accordingly. This decision transformation process is similar in a honeybee swarm. For the swarm, the integrator for each potential nest site is the number of bees that visit it. We have learned how a scout's dance strength recruits more scouts to it and how these new scouts will then dance for a site found acceptable with the strength of their dance indicating their perception of site quality. This means that over time many different dances will occur on the swarm and at varying strengths. Since the highest quality site will continue to attract more scouts then the best site will accumulate the highest number of bees that visit it. Previously, it was mentioned how the integrators in monkey brains are mutually inhibitory. As evidence builds in one integrator, it inhibits the accumulation of evidence in all other integrators. Similarly, with honeybee swarms, the fast rise of bees visiting the higher quality site is accompanied by a decline of bees at all other sites. In this case, inhibition is due to the finite pool of uncommitted scout bees that can be recruited to support a found site. If the recruits were originally visiting a poor site, when they retire from visiting and dancing, as we've learned that all scouts eventually do, and re-enter the neutral recruit pool, they are more likely to be recruited to a better site whose dances have continued to grow over time. An additional shared design of integrators in monkey brains and honeybee swarms is that collection of evidence in any integrator will decline over time if no new evidence is collected. Think of the integrators as being leaky. Without a continuous influx of information, all the previously collected input will leak out of it. This same mechanism is seen in the way a scout bee's drive to visit and dance for sites will decline and then eventually cease over time. So why might this be the case? Well, several models developed by mathematical psychologists have found that this mechanism enables a decision-making system to update itself should the situation change and a new alternative is discovered. This mechanism also results in lengthening the time period in which evidence is collected, preventing fast mistakes. And Ceeley sees the same function in his honeybee swarms. Working with Kevin Passino once more, the two men designed a mathematical model of the nest site selection process of a swarm. This model simulated the activity of 100 scout bees presented with six nest sites that varied in quality. Each simulated scout was equipped with all the known behaviour of scout bees. And they originally tested the model and then compared the results to those seen when observing natural swarms. It worked beautifully with the model system replicating real world examples. Then they modified the model to include scout bees who behaved slightly differently from their real world counterparts. For instance, they modified the dance decay rate of the scout bees. Real scouts reduced their dance strength by 15 dance circuits per trip on average. However, in their model system, they tweaked it to see what would happen if the decay rate was raised to 35 circuits per trip and then lowered to five circuits per trip. At the lower decay rate, which caused the the scouts to dance for longer, the model swarms made faster but less accurate decisions. Their decision-making was poor because the information received was lingering for longer, meaning that a poor site discovered early would have more support than a good site discovered much later in the process. At the increased decay rate, the swarm decision making process was much slower but had a high degree of accuracy. It took the swarm a long time to decide because even the best sites had scouts that would stop visiting more rapidly, causing a longer time to reach the information threshold needed to make a decision. The decision was more accurate because the threshold would eventually be received as normal, just at a much slower rate. Looking at these results, we can see that the dance decay rate witnessed in a natural swarm is a good balance of speed and accuracy. So now we move on to the section entitled the action transformation in a swarm. The final stage of any decision-making process is the act of making the decision itself, selecting a single response to the options at hand. In monkey brains, when making eye movement decisions, and in a honeybee swarm choosing its new nest site, a response occurs when just one of the integrators reaches a threshold level. This usually results in a good decision because, to quote Seeley, The relative level of evidence in each alternative's integrator normally reflects the relative strength or quality of each alternative. In chapter 7, we learned how a honeybee swarm senses when a threshold level has been reached through quorum sensing. Once a quorum has been sensed, the scout bees begin to stimulate the swarm to prepare for flight via worker piping. The beauty of this method is that even if some scouts are still reporting for losing sites, the activity of the bees preparing for flight will drown out these potentially confusing messages, ensuring consensus for the chosen site is reached. Quorum size is a key component in the accuracy of this decision-making system, as demonstrated when CD modified his mathematical swarm simulation once more. If he adjusted the number lower than the natural model of about 15 bees at a nest site simultaneously, his model swarms made fast, poor decisions. Adjusting it upward resulted in slower and only slightly more accurate decisions. Once again, the natural system seems to have found a good balance between speed and accuracy when making a decision. And this makes sense if we consider how natural selection has honed this process to one that offers the greatest chance of success, as the swarm has just this one chance to succeed. Seely notes, however, that it is possible that the quorum number could be lowered in an emergency, such as extremely bad weather or the swarm being on the verge of starvation. This would allow a swarm to seek a new nest site much faster. Whether this is in fact the case, however, awaits further study. This next section is called Convergence on Optimal Design. 30 years ago, computer scientist Douglas Hofstadter suggested that, to quote, Ant colonies are no different from brains in many respects. In both systems, groups of ants and groups of neurons are themselves not individually intelligent, but function together as a higher level intelligence. 30 years on, much more is known about the decision-making systems of primate brains and insect societies. And all this new knowledge seems to support Hofstadter's statement, namely, to quote, that evolution has built intellectual strength in ant and bee colonies and in primate brains using fundamentally similar schemes of information processing. Looking at the decision-making systems of primate brains and honeybee swarms, we can identify five critical elements. Number one, sensory units that provide evidence with each reporting on just one option and with its strength connected to the quality of said option. Number two, integrator units that collect evidence provided by the sensory units with each integrator collecting for just one option or possibility such as nest site quality. Number three mutual inhibition of the integrators the growth of evidence in one suppresses the growth in all other integrators number four leaky integrators growth of evidence requires continuing input and number five threshold sensing. The first integrator to reach the threshold wins and a decision is made based on this integrator's evidence. Why might this kind of convergence have occurred? To quote Seeley, a strong possibility is that this striking similarity exists because this design is a means of implementing robust, efficient and possibly even optimal decision making. Now let's look at something called the Sequential Probability Ratio Test or SPRT. This mathematical system implements the t- statistically optimal strategy for choosing between two alternatives by specifying when to stop integrating further evidence in order to achieve a given error rate. This minimises the time needed to make a decision for any desired level of accuracy. Simply put, this test Achieves the optimal balance between accuracy and speed when making a decision. A computer scientist at the University of Bristol in England, my alma mater, named James Marshall, worked with a team to examine theoretically how honeybee swarms might implement optimal decision making when faced with the choice of just two nest sites. Working on the premise that evidence for one alternative is also evidence against the other alternative, they posit that all evidence can be accumulated as a single total. This random walk model posits that evidence accumulation can be viewed as a random walk along a timeline where evidence for one alternative increases the total while evidence for the other alternative decreases it. This random walk model of decision making implements the the statistically optimal SPRT. In the case of swarm, deciding between two possible nest sites, we can see how evidence for a site is also evidence against the other. Seely points out that further study is needed when examining this binary choice scenario in honeybee swarms. Of course usually swarms are faced with deciding between several sites not just two and even near the end of the decision making process the race to reach threshold limit can occur between more than two sites. But since the SPRT is effective when several alternatives are available, it is possible that primate brains and honeybee swarms independently evolved the same basic decision-making mechanism because it results in or close to optimal decision-making. To quote Seeley, If this hunch proves correct then we are looking at an astonishing convergence in the adapted design of two physically distinct forms of thinking machines, a brain built of neurons and a swarm built of bees. And that's it for chapter nine. So in my next episode I will be finishing the book with chapter 10 and the prologue, I'm just going to combine them, And then we're done hooray and once I have finished with this book I have a couple of other options. I am probably going to do something on top bar beekeeping and I've also been reading a ton of um, really interesting farming or homesteading memoir books lately. I've just kind of been bombing through them in my spare time. So I might share some recommendations for books that I think could be of interest to my listeners moving forward. As always thank you so much for sticking with me. I hope you are finding this book review interesting. Um, I know this chapter is very dry. I hope you were able to stick through it with me. I mean ultimately the similarities between how the primate brain is making decisions based on visual stimuli and how a honeybee swarm is making their decision about a new nest site it is very interesting I think it's just easy to get lost in the technical details uh, as always I hope everyone listening is staying safe I hope you've got your first vaccine or you're in the process of getting yours my husband's actually getting his first one today and I'm going in um this week to get my first vaccine so i'm very excited to um get that done in the meantime um i just hope that you're all staying safe that you're still washing your hands wearing your mask being careful but if we stick this out it looks like maybe normal life will be here by the end of the year fingers crossed now usually i say goodbye to anyone now who doesn't want to listen to personal updates and then give some general rundown of what's been going on with me but honestly I don't really have anything to report this week so this is where I'm just going to leave you all I'll say thank you so much for tuning in Uh, please check me out on Instagram Facebook wherever you like to hang out you're welcome to contact me there and you can also email me with any questions comments or just to kind of have a chat you can email me at homesteadhensandhoney all one word at gmail.com So until next time, stay safe and hug your hens and then wash your hands. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye.